A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. A music dance experience. Don't pervert a handbook passage to me, okay? You are listening to a Lorehounds Plus Properly Howard production. Today we cover episode four of Severance. Before we do, Steve and I talk for about ten minutes about our recent trip to New York City. If you don't care about that, just jump ahead about 10 or 11 minutes. All right, without further ado, here is comic Steve Osborne. So, Steve, we're about a week out from our excursion to the East Coast. That is correct. Boston, Hartford, and then NYC. And I would like to share two things. One thing I learned about you and one thing I learned about me. All right. And I'd like you to do the same. Okay. All right. So the first thing that I learned about me, I cannot navigate underground. <laughs> if, if I'm above ground, boy, I, I'm, I'm fine. I, I, can, I can track the sun. I can, I can put my licked finger to the wind. And tell you that there are coyotes nearby. You bring me underground with a subway map, I, I'm, I'm worthless. <laughs> what did you learn about yourself? This, um, this I learned I, I learned that I'm, uh, I, I'm much better at uh, going with the flow than I, I think I give myself credit for. Mm. Um, though I did have specific touch points. Um, I was willing to get lost. Right. If when things didn't go your way, you were more willing than in maybe in the past to like, yeah. say, well, let's see what adventure comes comes about because of this. Right. And especially because, you know, it's a long travel and you like, you know, you run the risk of not running into something that you or seeing something that you may never see again. Right. I mean, like we got on the wrong subway. We were on our way to Central Park. Central Park is not a small thing. It's it's pretty big. It's it's a it's a giant thing. It, it, you could fit a city inside Central Park. Yeah. It's not easy to not find. <laughs> and yet, uh, that was supposed to be the first thing we did one day, and we never. <laughs> we didn't do it even a little bit that day. <laughs> we did not. In fact, see we went. We went. One. I think we went about as far away from it as you could, and still and still be in New York City. <laughs> We got on the wrong subway, and we thought, "Oh, let's let's see where this thing takes us." And uh, you know, we ended up pooping at Thirty Rock, which was yeah, 
Fine by me. Which was necessary. We yeah. ended up at Banana Republic. No, I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> which that is, was not Which expected. is about the same. Which is about the same as Central Park. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's not like, I'm, well, what is a New York Banana Republic like? <laughs> And we bought what, nothing. What did you do in New York? Well, we did some window shopping <laughs> at a chain Ooh. that we could have done. We could have done at any city in the in the Midwest. Right. It's it's funny because it's like I'm not going to drive 40 minutes there, but if I, I I might fly five hours. I do think that we're kind of underselling our trip. We did see a lot of cool stuff. Oh, we saw a lot. Oh yeah. It ended up being a pretty uh, Ghostbusters centric trip. I, I, yeah, more so than I, I hadn't, to be honest, I don't think it really ever really crossed my mind when I got there or before I got there. Like I knew what what I wanted to see, you know, and we saw that, I think I, I'd like to think so. And then it was like, oh, yeah, there's this. And I don't know how Night Court came about. <laughs> I have no idea. Like, I don't know why, like. I was like, oh, let me see if the night court building is here. Well, I think that these things are connected. I think that there was something about ghosts and ghouls and Halloween that drew us to night court because it seemed like Richard Mall was on his way out. Yeah, I mean, we could, I guess we could sense that he was, he was just hanging on. He was almost a specter. Right. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, it's really something. So we went to the night court building, and the day after, we found out that uh, the, the actor that played Bull died almost almost exactly when we arrived at the night court building. Right. So we killed Richard Mall. So our apologies. Yeah. And we even didn't even know we were paying respect to him the next day when we went to the the Bull statue in Wall Street. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We did. I think we saw almost everything on accident. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Beastie Boy Square was like the only thing I think we had discussed in advance. Yeah, but we didn't know we were going to go twice. We didn't know we were going to go twice and just sit there. <laughs> I didn't even know that there was a Beastie Boy Square until you mentioned it. And uh, it ended up being a pretty important part of our, our little excursion. Yeah. We, yeah. I, I don't know. Outside of probably Little Italy, it's the only place that we spent. Uh, multiple days at and like significant time at i suppose we spent multiple days at a a nike restock store right that's right uh and again, and again window shopping no- purchase <laughs> <Didn't>... nothing <laughs> not, that, not like we couldn't get these same nikes on ebay or whatever yeah just to be very clear we didn't even try anything on at any of these places but for some reason it was sort of like uh, in be- we were in between Nike's and the Ghostbusters fire station. Right. Happened to see a very high quality pizza place. One of my favorite parts of the trip, Lombardi's. No uh, question, Lombardi's was amazing. And that was the place that my my buddy had recommended. He gave me a list of uh, restaurants to go to, and uh, I hadn't really had the opportunity to digest it all and, and determine where we might be in relation to any of those. And uh, I, we were getting lost, I think, on the way to Little Italy. And then you said, hey, this place looks pretty great. And uh, I looked up and I'm like, well, Marty's. And I, I'm like, I pulled up his message and I was like, oh, is this on the corner of like, was it Spring and Mott? And you're, mm-hmm. you're pointing right to it. Like, yeah. So we ended up at uh, the place he recommended for the best pizza. And I was not disappointed in the slightest. Food was a big, food was a big thing. I feel like I 
ate at, at least four restaurants that I, I couldn't have eaten at anywhere else in the world. Uh, that was that was a big deal. That was a big deal for me. What's one thing that you learned about me, Steve? Um, it's very, very important to you that you do not share a bed with a man. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter if you've known this man for probably, you know... Longer than I've been an adult. Right. And the idea, the sheer idea that if I, in the middle of the night, when I was very cold because I was I had nothing but a sheet on and the air conditioner was blasting, the, the sheer concept that I might have, like, got into that bed uh, was very upsetting to you. And, and you were, and it's probably the, I, it may be the first time you've ever actually thanked me for anything, was thanking me for not getting in that bed. To be clear, I take the Bible very literally, and when it says a man shall not lie with a man, I'm thinking if we're going to do anything, it's going to be in the shower, because we're going to yeah. be standing up in the shower. Lying down is what the sin is. I don't want our listeners to misunderstand. We had sex every night. <laughs> but we didn't lie down while we were having sex, and that's No, 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 I know, and yeah, that's where I got most of my steps in. <laughs> right. I mean, look, I feel like it was important to me going in that we would have separate sleeping places. Uh, I it's it's more just sort of a personal space thing than anything else. Yeah, we because this is this is the where we were kind of at. Not You're an used impasse. to sleeping with like three dogs. So yeah, I don't care. Not... I, you know what? <laughs> I throw some strangers in the mix, man. I don't care. But like some the uh, yeah the. Um, raccoons when you initially had picked out a spot you know and i hadn't i would have had no problem staying at the ymca and bunk beds i because like it was more of a place to just sort of touch base and the centralized concept was great uh but the idea of a shared bathroom was was an issue for me we had one night we had a we had a shared bathroom and that was at the monastery mm -hmm. so i made do I thought that the YMCA would allow me to kind of pretend like I was uh, Royal Tenenbaum for just a little while. Gotcha. I see. The bathroom didn't really bother me that much. Uh, I, I could foresee it being a problem, but I thought, eh, if I could save a few hundred bucks, I'd right. be willing to smell someone else's poop, uh, <laughs> which I did anyway. I smelled your yeah. poop. Yeah. Well, there was, there was poop to be smelled throughout New York, let's be clear. New York was not lacking for feces. So uh, one thing I learned about you, Steve, was that your comedy works for a room of 100. It can also work for a room of six people. <laughs> I mean, it, it really doesn't change the experience of you, uh, depending on who's in the room. Uh, you give it the same amount of energy, uh, regardless and I appreciate that about you. Well, I appreciate you appreciating that. That that's uh, it's it's not. I mean, it's not something that I did early on in my career. Like it would be this sense of like, oh, I don't want to. Why am I even here? What a, what a waste. Blah blah blah. But then over time, I kind of got to the realization that like it's not the people that are there's fault that other people aren't. You know what I mean? It's right. like so. Shout out to Nolan who drove all the way up from Baltimore. Absolutely. To no. see a, 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 a very uh, interesting bar show. Uh, yeah, you have two options. You could have seen me at the West Side Comedy Club in the Upper West Side of uh, Manhattan. 
or you could have gone to Brooklyn at a bar to show. a raucous sure. crowd, I might add. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that was that was quite an experience. I enjoyed that quite a bit. Uh, the Talon Bar basement, which did feel a bit like a dungeon. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it was an experience, and I'm glad we had it. It's uh, it's certainly uh, a, a memorable experience. I think that uh, I think maybe uh, no one was expecting a, a more traditional uh, comedy event. I, I would imagine, but uh, yeah, that's kind of what I got out of it. But at least he got to buy his drinks. <laughs> yeah, so that I mean, it wasn't a total waste for him. <laughs> thank you, thank you for the drinks, Nolan. Steve, I think this is my most favorite episode, my favoriteest episode of season one. So far in the rewatch or all together? I think altogether, my favorite episode. It also includes my least favorite scene of season one. Uh, the the drilling in the head or Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was the one. Took me right out of it. <laughs> but, you know, it's sort of like one of these things where it's like there are so many I would say that there's suggestive reveals. More than like an actual reveal, because you know, I sort of like a a reveal that drives the plot forward in an interesting way, but preserves the mystery of the of the plot as well. Yeah, I think it's a great way to put it. Like, there are so many questions we have that I think we forget how many questions we have. <laughs> yeah, and then so this sort of answers a few, but maybe not the ones we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Like that they're not that we didn't maybe prioritize, but because we're getting answers, it's um. Yeah. You, you feel like you're sated so that the mystery can keep going without you right. feeling like, yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting way of sort of like releasing a, a pressure valve of information mm-hmm. without, you know, going full reveal. That's right. And the other thing about this episode is that I think it really leans into the religious allegory super heavily and in a way that would normally take me out. You know, at no point was I thinking like, I get it, Egan's God, and you're the priest, you know. Right, right. At no point was I, I was like, I see what you're doing, you think you're being clever, but this has been done before. I I found the whole thing very interesting in a way that I was thinking, how do I use this in a class? And then I realized, eh, you, this is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would never use it for a class. This sort of the, the younger... More, uh, the the younger, braver Anthony might try to use this in a class, and it would probably fail. And I, <laughs> the 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 older the older <laughs> Anthony thinks I've got a lecture. I know it works. I'm sticking with what I. Yeah, need. younger Anthony would have failed, but not realized it until older Anthony would look back. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Anyway, I loved this episode for a number of reasons, and Sarah's really digging this this show now too. Today was sort of like. We watched it, you know, in the morning, not in the evening. Hmm. And she, I think she was really excited to talk with me about it, but then also a little bit upset with me that I've watched the entire season. Uh, this is sort of one of those things in my marriage where it's like, I will enjoy this with you differently if I know you've already seen it. <laughs> and I, I, I'm in the, I'm always in the position where I'm like, I watch things like five times. Right. That's yeah. who that's who I am. So I would love to the second time to be with you and 
anyway that, that, that way you can you're getting the rewatch but you're also getting to see mm-hmm. what maybe your reaction would have been you know from an outside perspective well in her defense her 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 main gripe is that like i would like to theorize with you where this story uh, oh gotcha yeah yeah and because you've watched the whole season i can't do that mm-hmm. so so she anyway. feels like she feels like it like me uh in a, a game of thrones rewatch with you yeah, I feel like just wait a couple of years, my dementia will kick in. <laughs> I won't remember anything anymore, and then we'll be good. So anyway, I I do like, I do really really like this episode. Maybe I should jump into the the recap here. Helly continues her break room confession. Milchik concludes the session, saying that they will try again in the morning. She leaves and returns seemingly instantaneously. Helly returns to MDR and discusses the voices with Dylan. Then Helly discovers the map. So there a bit happens here that sort of in the middle of that description, but I wanted to talk about this as a unit. I think this is the, we see the confession room most robustly uh, at the beginning of this episode. I mean, there's the hints that it's sort of like psychological torture, but I don't really feel like i understood the extent of it until this episode yeah and they talk about like the sounds like and they you know try to make make sense of other sounds that they're hearing when they're in there which is uh, i have a theory about this but i won't i'm not going to talk about it till our spoiler section at the end okay because i i did not catch it the first time i didn't think it was important the first time but there's something about the fact that they're using different voices for different employees mm-hmm. that seems significant to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. She says she, she hears a angry mumbly guy. Mm-hmm. She's like, what's up with the angry mumbly guy? Or the, what's up with the voices? And then Dylan says, you mean the baby crying in the other room? Right. And she says, no, the angry mumbly guy. So to me, that seems like, hmm... They are very intentionally designing this psychological... Well, they're looking for a psychological break, right? Right. And you really get the sense that Milchek is... I mean, he's just totally demented. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's an interesting detachment, right? Like, I mean, it's... um, Because on one hand, you kind of go, well, is this guy just doing his job, right? But they're they're... Even without showing it like there's there has to be some level of satisfaction that he gets out of this i don't know it's i mean i'm just thinking like i've had to discipline people before but to do it over a thousand times to have someone someone repeat something over a thousand times that'd be torture for me even if i was the person demanding that you know the the act being done milchik is he's something else it's funny. Um, just I think yesterday we had a we had like a work meeting with like the managers and everything. We we're talking about uh, of all things, uh, employee handbook and um, <laughs> how you know we're making some changes. And it's like, and then talking about specific things that seem to be uh, repeated offenses. But the handbook can be depending on how you want to interpret it, maybe it's not explicit enough about things. And it's like, well, you know, we try to prescribe exactly the kinds of things you could do on your phone during work. And I'm like, well, just, just make it pretty 
pretty blanket. Can't use your phone during work hours uh, for non-work related things. And that, you know, that feels a little less open to interpretation. Um, but uh, there's like, well, I mean, maybe they need to text, a, you know, a coworker to, or a manager. I'm like, well, that's work related. <laughs> you know, something like, so they wanted to like spell everything out. And so, mm -hmm. but then we started talking about like, having to do different warnings and verbal warnings and written warnings. And I said, you know, one of the things that ends up happening more often than not, and I, there was a, a study that was kind of presented at one of the places I've worked where this says, you know, as managers, you'll spend like 80% of your time with the lowest 10% uh, of your employees, like in terms of productivity, <laughs> because you're trying to get them to be right. better. So you're actually spending a ton of time just trying to push this rock uphill. Meanwhile, you're actually losing some of your high performers because they feel like they're not getting challenged or developed or enough attention. Oh, this is exactly the thing that teachers go through. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so going back to your point, it's like the idea of like when you have somebody who's like needs to be disciplined or you have to go through a performance improvement plan, I'm like, it's it's grueling for me as the manager. I Putting somebody on a performance improvement plan, like, it's all consuming for me. I feel like I'm in trouble. And so, so for, and so I'm trying to like, so sometimes like my instinct is like, yeah, it's just close enough. Let's just call it. You know? yeah. uh, whereas with Milchek, there's none of that, you know? And I, and so either he is an absolute soldier for the company or he's just attached enough where it's like, no, I, I could do this. I could do this forever. And it's that either, that either is detachment or there's a level of maybe uh, sadism. It's interesting to see the level of devotion by all of these different employees. I feel like Mark, when Mark is trying to be a manager, he's put in a position where he has to defend the institution. Even if it sounds a little bit like an apologist, you know, it's like that. Right. That's why we have the handbook. That's why we have the rules. So you don't have to go to the break room. Right. You know, he's like, you know, he's basically defending the institution's policy on torture by trying to keep people in line. And at one point you've got Cobell in her office and I still don't know really what Cobell has in mind. Like she's clearly a institutional creature, but she also really cares for Mark on some level. And she's like repeating Lumen's core principles to herself under her breath. Mm -hmm. Like, like almost looking for spiritual guidance. Right. Feels like it's like for her, like, from the religious perspective, it's a discipline. Like there are people like in in um, mm. whatever the faith based system might be, there are those who are just, I'm in. You know, I I believe I believe it all. And other folks is like, eh, you know, I really don't know how much I believe in what I'm hearing or what I'm told to believe, but I I believe that I should believe. So I'm going to. I'm gonna like just will yourself to. Believe. I'm gonna, yeah, I just I just if I say it enough, if I listen to the right you know, audio tapes, I listen to the right music, I, I, I divorce myself of certain things, then maybe it'll just click. Because like, because you, you know, and that, you know, and that was kind of always my experience, I think, in the religious world was, everybody else seems to be doing really good at it. Uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm just not and I go, I'll try this out. I'll maybe I won't have this in my life. And I'll, then, maybe then, puppets will do it for me. Maybe but yeah, this will be the thing that that, that makes it click. And, uh, and so like, so when you see, I, I think there's something interesting too about <laughs> Cobell with the finger trap, which I thought, I thought was an <laughs> amazing <was> <laughs> image because yeah. 
I, you know, you get the sense that like these are just things that like it's it, there are these ridiculous and absurd trinkets that like mm. Dylan refers to as like it's not really so much the functionality as it is like look how many I have right like they're they're just symbols uh, <laughs> My of trophy. Yeah, they're there's they're symbols of success. And for her, she's just uh -huh. she's she's exercising with the finger trap, which I or like in a way like I, it's like she's it's such a weird moment because because yeah. she's turning into something functional. And like I, I would love to have known where that and like where it came from. Like was she just have them in the drawer because, you know, you hand them out and she's just but it shows kind that there's not failed O&D. Yeah, it's like there's like not a lot of things to do there. <laughs> like if you're in your if you're in your office, a lot of times like, yeah, nobody's uh -huh. here. I'll just kind of search the web or I'm on my phone. But like there's something like she's like trying to find something. And it's like it's a symbol of the of the place, you know, and it's a symbol mm -hmm. to the to the subjects of um, of importance. So maybe she's trying it on to see if that will also help, uh, you know, this whole fake it to make it type yeah thing. she she is kind of a fake it till you make it kind of, and, you know people in different religions have mantras and you, you know choosing a mantra says something about you i think and some some people like will pray with a cross maybe the finger trap is sort of like something tactile to direct your attention uh which is kind of funny in itself because it's a it's a trap right <laughs> so, so um but the levels... well, it's a self-inflicted trap, right? Like yeah. in this case, which I think is good, right? Like it's 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 very. I think the finger trap is always self-inflicted, unless there's an older brother or sister involved, right? So the idea, like, so I love the idea that there's like there's you know like two sides of her, right? Two fingers in a self-inflicted mm -hmm. trap, and and she's but she's doing it in such a way where she's like going fast enough so that she keeps herself mm -hmm. in it. <laughs> while she's doing the mantra and i think that there's a lot of really interesting symbolism there you know i think so too we'll talk about that with heli a little bit later i do think that it's so milchik seems all in all the time i've never seen a side of him that suggests although he is reading the 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 ricken book which it would right. be against policy right so so then you've got mark who's sort of like pretty like his his in his private life he's kind of questioning mm. and he's a little bit rebellious but sort of like the manager face is that he's very you know company man dylan seems to be the same all the time although he's he does believe these you know these false i don't know prop this false propaganda about o and d right so he's kind of bought into the He's he's bought into the corporate culture of it, but he kind of doesn't view it as sacred. It's like a, it's more of a tribal thing. Right. Example. Yeah, I think tribal is a great word. Like I'm loyal to this team because it's my team. That's right. Not right. not necessarily be like it, but if I was an O and D, I'd be against macro data refinement. And then of course, Heli is not broken yet. She's not been broken in. She's an independent, autonomous person. And so she she needs over a thousand confessions to try to I don't know create create a sort of a corporate stooge, right? Um, and and we we get it. I mean, we get glimpses that we we don't know exactly, but Marcus clearly had his time in the break room. He knows yeah. about the bad soap, like he knows about 
um, a lot of a lot of punishments, which seems to indicate that maybe he had a, you know, some sort of a similar beginning. I think so. I think so. And I want to talk about that in a bit. One other thing I wanted to mention, and I kind of made a note with a question mark, is that like they find the map, and then they discover that Mark is sort of hyper- hypocritical, right? He's he kept the map, and someone, and I forget who says it, quotes the handbook and says, "Render not my creation in miniature." Right. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and so I thought that was pretty funny, and then um, so. It certainly feels like a, a like a parody of uh, false gods, right? I, I wrote down idolatry. Yeah, yeah, I wrote yeah. Down like this is this is this sort of a homage or a parody of the instruction not to create and you know little little gods that you worship, little gods right. like a stone that you worship. And I thought mm, maybe not, but then as this thing goes forward, and there's so many other biblical allusions, I thought oh, that that must have been on purpose. And and I, it also made me like <laughs> made me realize, oh, that's why this uh, this museum, uh, the, the Hall of Perpetuity, is is the way it is. No it, life size. It's, it's all gotta be life size, <laughs> or it has to be bigger or whatever. But it can't be in miniature, right? And it almost feels like. And then you wonder, right? Like you wonder, was that Kier's intent? To have that, or was that like, well, we want to do something, but we know it can't be miniature, so I think we can still get away with this. But he was specific about being miniature. <laughs> like also, things. so like going back to what I was talking about, like, well, you can always like find a way around the rules in the handbook if you uh-huh. interpret them a certain way. <laughs> um. So all right. So then next next scene, Mark misses a call on Petey's phone and stashes it, noticing several missed calls from the same blocked number. The next day, he studies Petey's map in the break room. Bert shows up at MDR with a pre-release of totes. I, I just, I, I was, I was more excited about the totes. Yeah, <laughs> like the the idea of like a, a pre-release drop. It was just they were so stoked. <laughs> Dylan, but I love it. Him. I love it because it's like, but who are you? Like, who would you even show that off to? You don't work with any other it's like there's an entire wing of this institution with seven people and their whole job is to make the place a just slightly more artistic for four other people (laughs) (laughs) right that we know of all right uh dylan threatens uh bert with a stapler irv goes to a d where he makes a connection with bert uh, this man, I just Dylan just doesn't disappoint. <laughs> just it's not like he's holding that like a bludgeon, like we've seen a stapler actually used as a weapon right. in this show already. He's holding it like a gun, like he's gonna, right. He's gonna shoot just... staples. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought a wonderful scene, great Irv episode, and I think that this. What this episode does is it opens doors to a possible development of Irv's character beyond like the caricature that he right originally was. Well, and I and I think that that's a uh, 
a fascinating part of this is because we know like he operates as a caricature, mm -hmm. but it almost feels like this is this is what happens when you do this long enough. Right. You you become less of a person and more of a you know a role, right? And and so he he is so by the book and he is so paranoid about everything and wanting people to get in trouble. Like he's like, that's like kind of feels like these are trajectories. Right. And, and so because he's been there so long and because he's, he's older, um, you know, he's, he's become less and less. And so the idea that, that there's still something that's in there, uh, kind of it goes back to this whole experiment, which feels like that's like, this feels like an experiment. Right. I mean, mm-hmm from at least trying to figure out the Cobell Selvig motivation. It's like, mm -hmm. I keep going back and forth with like, is this, is this company sanctioned? Is this independent? Is a little bit of both because she goes to get the, the PD chip. Mm -hmm. Milchick doesn't go get the PD chip. Why couldn't he, you know, <laughs> right. which, you know, so there's an interesting element of a questionable agency across the board. Right. Well, she, I think she has to go off script a bit to do this. But it's okay, right? It seems like it's okay. But why wouldn't somebody else go? I mean, they know about it. Yeah, my feeling is that if so, the fact that PD is on the loose is kind of being hung on her. You know, Milchik isn't getting berated by the board because PD's on the loose, and and I think that they know that they need that chip. Like they 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 need to get PD back, not because they want to get pd back because i want to get his chip back i think that's the impression mm -hmm. now milchik knows this but it's not going to be hung on milchik if if it goes up in the cremation so i feel like she thinks this is on me if i want to keep my job i've got to get a little bit creative here and so i'm going to do it myself that that's how i read it anyway mm, okay this uh, all right. So this is interesting to me because uh, this is one of those reveals that Irv has a romantic connection with Burke. Right. He's found a way to find a bit of humanity just in the <laughs> this little world, right? And right. He's found it by like you know looking at the the two or three paintings that they have on hand at any given time. But he's also made this human real life human connection with a possible romantic interest. And this suggests he's not, you can't reduce him to just corporate stooge, right? There's more to him than just that. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and then, you know, so then there's a bunch of other questions. We don't, you know, at this point we, we have, we've only seen, we've only seen Mark outside. We've only seen Audi Mark and recordings of, Audi heli right uh so we still have a lot of questions about the rest of these folks and so like the whole irv concept is like well is he you know is this because like is is this romantic relationship one of those things where it's like well you know because i work with them or is you know is is, is there something else is, right is there something else? right? Yeah, and because like it's there's something interesting about um, being at work, right? You have work friends, and uh, and then if you leave the job, it's pretty rare, at least for me, that that those friendships continue. Mm -hmm. um, 
so this is their world, right? This is all they have. And it's like, so there's also a part that's kind of like, well, is this attraction genuine? You know, I mean, I believe it is, but it's like, is it also like, well, here's somebody who appreciates things that, that like I do. And this is the closest thing to, to finding kind of like a soulmate. So, yeah, they're kind of you know, kindred spirits in the sense like he can quote chapter and verse from the handbook and he really does appreciate the the corporate endorsed artwork. And, and, and with that, there's like, OK, well, you're one of the few people that get me deep down in some part of my subconscious. I have a longing for a relationship, a romantic relationship, perhaps. Um, and this is this is what I I think I would want out of, you know. So it doesn't matter if it's Christopher Walken or not, you know, like I want, that's when from a, from like a psychological study perspective, that's kind of what I, I like curious about. Right. Cause I don't know anything about her uh, mm-hmm. beyond, beyond this world. Next a uh, little bit. Rickon's book left behind by Milchek during Helly's attempted escape. Mark decides to keep the book despite promising to give it up to management. And this is sort of where, I thought that the biblical allegory is most sort of in your face. Um, there's this, you know, they they quote the handbook saying, you know, don't, you know, don't dabble in the works of le- lesser men or something like that. Right. And I thought, oh, this is sola scriptura. That's what this is. This is, no, you know, no book but the Bible. And then, of course, you've got Irv who thinks it's been left as a loyalty test. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is, to me, you know, it's it, this is sort of like these uh, fundamentalists who believe that the dinosaur bones who were put there to test our faith or something. Right. And that there's no accidents, right? There's no... Right. It... Everything, everything is... I mean, and for good reason, they are being watched. Right. You know? Sure. We don't know when they're being watched, but, uh, you know, Irv, you know, Irv is right to be paranoid. Uh, of course, you know, you you never, you know, this is always the problem with conspiracy theories is that you always sort of give too much credit to the, the higher ups when really they're probably just as stupid as anyone else. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you're giving credit both directions, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, but I, yeah, it's, I love the idea that it's. It's like, well, there, there's no way that they would have made a mistake. Um, so, so we, you know, and that's where conspiracy theories come along is like from this, this very strange place. Of- so I, I thought, and this sort of doesn't come up till later, but I'm going to bring it up to this point in the story. So Rickon and crew, <laughs> Rickon includes this acrostic called destiny. So he like uses this poem and he uses the, the letters of the word destiny to kind of create a list of things that he thinks are important, you know, dream, energy, terror, and so on and so forth. And I thought this was an interesting counterbalance to sort of the Lumen core principles. They're just sort of simple, abstract concepts. And yet the Lumen, it seems like the Lumen core principles are used to suppress your, your humanity Right. You're supposed to you're supposed to cheer is one of the, the, the principles. You're, you're supposed to, you know, endorse uh, an embodied cheer, but you're not supposed to like it any more than the other. Principles, right. right. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Which means it's almost it's almost impossible to, to make it happen. 
And then this one is like, you know, the ideas of like dreaming and energy that breaks down walls and terror. You know, these are all bits of sort of the, the chaotic human experience, which I think Rickon intends to like, you know, use for self-discovery or something like that. But for the characters in this, which might just be total bullshit or whatever, but the, for the characters in the story, I think that they're realizing there's more in the world than just the handbook. And and it might be just as, you know, just as gratifying, just as it might be just as revelatory as the handbook. So I thought that was a nice little parallel between the, the destiny poem and the Lumen core principles. Yeah. Yeah. And it, <laughs> I just love too, that somehow, Rickon again, again, uh, and you know maybe this is a reader response thing. It's like it's not that Rickon is brilliant; it's just that you received it in a way that changed your life, right? And then also the if it's how does someone rebel against a system that they've grown up with? It's just seeing maybe something different. So maybe you know maybe it's it's not a, a nuanced approach to uh, to changing one's lifestyle so much as it is. Ah, this is a different thing, so I'm already interested. Next storyline here. Helly finds a paper cutter and threatens Cobell with self-mutilation unless she is granted a recorded resignation request. However, her Audi sends back a recording firmly denying the request. And for me, this is what made the episode. This sort of to me, this is the thing that I like most about this. And it's a reveal, I think, that Heli's Audi is her own antagonist. Mm-hmm. Which we didn't know until this point, at least at this level, right? Right, to the point where she... I'm a person yeah. and you're not. Yeah, yeah, that is such a... I mean, that was, was kind of a mind-blowing moment because... Just figures, well, if there's anybody in this entire universe I can rationalize with, it's myself. Right. Yeah, I must be me who, outside. Who, who would, who, if, <laughs> if there's only one person in this world that has my best interest in mind, it's me. So she, she makes this uh-huh. plea and she does this extreme thing so that she can finally let her Audi know what's really going on. And the Audi's like, don't care. Not only does she not care. She calls her bluff and says, if you chop off my fingers, I'll make sure I keep you alive long enough to regret it. Wild. Those are your fingers. <laughs> those, right. Those... <laughs> That's actually your brain, to some degree, is having this conversation with you. It's 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 goofy, and it makes you wonder, I mean, like, what are the stakes? Like, what are the... Heli's Audi must have... Some motivation that supersedes self-preservation. Because we've seen, because we, we, we got a glimpse of Heli's Audi uh, during the operation, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were all like, there was a, there was a honored to have her. Mm-hmm. And she seemed pretty, you know, pretty upbeat. You know, she seemed like asking a lot of questions and, and. Uh, well, she, you yeah, know, so, she acts like someone who has a public face. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, they were, were excited to have you. And when she tries to escape the first time, she's sort of like lasted off. Boy, I really don't want to be in there, do I? 
You know, it's it's kind of like right, the right. voice you would use at work with someone you want to sort of keep a superficial relationship with. Mm-hmm. Now we see that she's a monster. She is a moral right. monster, basically. And it's such a it's such a and it creates the so now like you're talking about like these little questions start getting answered and like and this this creates a whole new mystery. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, this is something that's just it's baffling to think about that you would sit there and, you know, because it's such an abstract concept anyway. But the idea that you would tell a version of yourself that you're not around mm-hmm. uh, or basically threaten it. Right. I mean, that's such a a, a bananas idea. And it also kind of goes back to the metaphor of the finger trap. Right. Like, yeah, how mm. are you going to finger trap me if I've got no fingers? So, right. and then, of course, I think this foreshadows how this episode ends, right? How are you going to trap me if there's no me? Everything, this show is just really tightly, tightly crafted. Uh, well, and consider, and considering now Helly's Innie's perspective, in her mind, it's like, ah, uh, well, I am a person. Hmm, hmm. And, you know, I, and if you're going to sit, if if the other version of me uh is going to to say that I'm not and they basically created me this way I mean killing oneself is I mean, she's killing her Audi that's the only way she could get how 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 do you get back at your Audi right because it's like look I don't want to be here and since you're not going to set me free I'll get rid of you too so I, so it's it's an interesting way to look at that like I don't look at that as an attempted suicide I look at it as an attempted murder it's interesting. I mean, but it is. I mean, there is a sense in which this this show is playing with the duality of the work self and the outside self, right? Mm-hmm. And it could be that you work in a job that's killing you. Yeah. And yet you keep going back, <laughs> keep going back, you know? The version of you that's at work that's miserable has to be, you know, has to come face to face with mm-hmm. the, the person outside that's like, yeah, but you know what? I got a lot of bills to pay. Or I've come, I've become accustomed to this, to this other life, these these accoutrements of my Audi life. Or this, this is the, this is the life I've made for myself, like it or not. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and and now I'm committed. I want to jump to the funeral here. So that, to me, that last part was maybe my favorite part of the show so far. And then this next part is seems a little out of place. So. We, both Mark and Miss Selvig slash Cobell attend the funeral. Mark has a few awkward exchanges with Petey's family. While a video plays of June and Petey playing guitar, Cobell ex- extracts Petey's severance chip prior to his cremation. Mark visits the tree where his wife died. I, I like the scene for the most part. I didn't buy that... You could just walk up to a body and drill into its head, perform surgery in the <laughs> other room without anyone noticing that this is this is happening. Well, so, yeah, so that on one hand, you go, yeah, it doesn't seem super logical. But then I think it does kind of go back to this other notion of like, I'm like, I start to question the outside. Yeah, world. Yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe it's like this is th- this whole this whole place is lumen, right? 
Right. Maybe they put, you know, lumen subsidized housing. and Yeah. But then how much agency do these people have? It seems like. Well, that's, I think, the big question, right? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean. Am I supposed to think that Petey's ex-wife has a chip in her head? Who's And she's like, they press the pause button so she can only look forward. I, I don't think that the show is trying to tell me that story. But maybe it is. Well, I've been to a few memorial services, and you know, uh, I mean, people could have been drilling things. And <laughs> there's always all the time. people drilling into people's skulls. I have no idea. Digging, digging around. I mean, it was a. I mean, I, I am a fan of uh, Enter Sandman, so I, you, you got my attention, even if it's a an awkward cover. <laughs> what did you think about the Enter Sandman cover? Very long, right? And it's it's kind of uh, hypnotic in a way. Um, you know, it really wants to really sets up a relationship between, you know, father and daughter for sure. Um, maybe a little bit on the nose in terms of the the song choice. Yeah, no, I thought it was, I mean, uh, for, for a show that really likes to play with imagery, the lyrics of that song are pretty evocative for the themes in this show. Right. And then, yeah. And so there's that, but then there's also like an interesting, like a show that's very patient in a lot of what it does with, with the camera angles and extended shots. And, and, and I, I take, whenever they take their time on something, I feel like it's worth paying attention to like, not just what's happening, but maybe why it's happening. So this extended, like almost trance like moment where you're just watching this over and over. And meanwhile, there's a whole, you know, uh, an extraction of, of, of pd's mm-hmm. chip um it it's sort of like i'm like i'm really i'm really drawn in because then i'm like well what is i mean i understand the importance of the chip yeah from a from a uh corporate perspective but i'm like what maybe there's more to this chip than we realize i think so too i was just gonna say when they when she gets the chip and brings it back and gives it to milchek they both say this is Petey. And they don't say, this is Petey's chip. Yeah. They say, this is Petey. Right. And it makes me wonder, like, did they have a cloning operation in the back? And they can stick this chip in the new clone? And and that's, yeah. So I start thinking clones. I start thinking, wait, maybe these folks aren't actually getting severed. Maybe they're created. or And they're getting turned on and off. Them. Or there's, it, it's fascinating, right? Because that, that, there's if again if maybe maybe we're doing the same thing um as when they find the handbook but uh, it feels like there's no accidents when it comes to how things are and worded maybe this and, is and... this is informative of heli's audi's response like yeah go ahead and chop off the fingers this is the, you know we'll just we'll just get a new model and and insert the chip into a new model mm-hmm. um I don't know. There's there's all kinds of questions with this thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, because, I mean, she specifically says, I'm a person you're not. Um, and we're so we're like, wait, is it is this clones? Is this something else? Is that really, you know, I get the sense that it is still the same person. But, um, but yeah, the idea that you needed that chip back, I mean, does it just have information? You know, is it? It's not that they're worried about it getting out into the world. It's going to get cremated. So they must need right. the information. They need it. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing that 
Sarah noticed that I didn't notice is that when Mark is at the funeral and talking with June, who's Petey's daughter, she says, you know, she kind of mocks the idea of trying to deal with your grief by shutting your brain off half of the time, right? Like me. Maybe that's not a, such a good idea. Mark says, I don't really have an answer to that. And Sarah mentioned that this suggests that PD had some kind of trauma, and that's why he joined. Mm. Uh, because, you know, I mean, clearly June doesn't know about Mark's trauma and why he joined Lumen. So she must be talking about PD. But we don't know what PD's trauma was. Oh yeah, good point. So that was, it's an it's it's an interesting little bit that's dropped, and I think it's supposed to help with Mark's character development, but it does sort of suggest that we don't know everything about Petey that we need to know. Right. No, that's a good point. Um, I just thought that the whole drilling thing was a bit of a departure for the show, in the same way that sort of the Audi video reveal was all set up, like every episode created a little bit of a step toward that reveal. I felt like the the drilling bit of it was, eh, maybe they didn't set that up well enough. It, di- it did make me feel like, is this a different show? Like, what am I watching here? Just, it feels like a different show. I mean, it is a different director in this episode, right, for the first time. I guess it isn't the first time we've seen a skull drilled. I mean, I see, yeah, see, I, I guess I was more, I was more, um, uh, locked in on the idea of is Cobell going rogue? Yeah, yeah. Um, is this you know because it's a pretty desperate and and risky thing she's doing, um, and you know while it's it's gruesome, it also suggests to me that Cobell does not see these people as people either. Mm. I mean to. For her to just drill into the skull of of one of her subjects or people that she saw all the time suggests something kind of similar to the way that we saw with 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 Milchek doing in yeah, the confession so. or the break room is that there's there is a detachment and and so it does question right I mean like if you're because she does seem somewhat human right I mean she at least has the ability to fake it if as as Selvig but there is something about her that feels more um more vulnerable than a milchek right like the way that she sort of seems um lesser than when she's dealing with a board and so we get the little senses of her mm-hmm. insecurity so she feels human maybe more so than milchek does yeah. so when she has the ability to just go ahead and drill into the guy's skull it's like is that is that because she's focused on this task and 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 you know the end justifies the means or is there something about Petey that's not human to her. Also, she has that exchange with June, his daughter, right? She's like, were you a friend? I was his daughter. And she's like, mm-hmm. so you must have been close, I guess. <laughs> or close and all <laughs> right. that or something like that. It was a really yeah. dismissive way to say it. And part of me thought, do you really not know that he's got a daughter? Because it seems like you know everything about everyone. Um... Or is this just your way to make this girl leave the room? Because you right. know that you need to d- start drilling or something. It, it's a, it's an odd. <laughs> her her character is maybe the weirdest person of the. It you know what you just said about 
not viewing them as a humans. I do think she does care about Mark on some level, but maybe she just cares about Mark like one would care about a pet and not necessarily like an actual human. Yeah, because I mean, she, she's observing him a lot, right? I mean, um, but she doesn't mind stealing from him. I mean, she takes the candle. Yeah, yeah. And then we see uh-huh. the candle. And this is her doing. And so that's another thing. It's like, is this her? Mm-hmm. Is this Lumen? Um, and to what end, right? Like, her relationship with Mark is very unique. Well, her relationship because... with Lumen is someone, somewhat unique because... Seems like what they do is they just apply pressure and say solve the problem. They never mm-hmm. kind of. They, it doesn't seem like they're micromanaging her. They just. They don't really care what she does as long as she gets results. So it's almost like incumbent upon her to get creative. The candle thing is important though, because again, Sarah knows this and I did not, but he. He's been using the candle at home to remember his wife. He goes downstairs in the basement and he sniffs the candle. Right. And then Cobell takes the candle. And then in this episode, the candle is burning in the room during the special wellness check. Right. So I think that there's something about, okay, we want you to remember and not remember at the same time. Yes, it's interesting because it does, on one hand, you go, is this just a test to see what the memory is? Because, you know, we see those tests Mm -hmm. in the, when Heli's first there and they ask questions about, you know, long-term, short-term, and then like right before she got in there kind of questions. Um, So it's like, it could be an opportunity like, hey, we're going to take something super personal and connected to you and we're going to bring it into this world. You know, it could be like, like a, a fatigue mm-hmm. test, uh, you know, an environmental test. See, is this is this still working the way it's supposed to work? And, or, but but then on the other hand, it's like, or is this is there something a bigger experiment going on here? Because I mean, what does he do when he's in the room? Uh, or does she clay? really care? Or does she really care and thinks he needs to grieve? Maybe he needs and this. I care uh, about yeah, him. Yeah, and- he he won't be able to remember, but the smell, but the you know the sense of smell is so connected mem- connected to memory, and because he smells the candle, he's able to sculpt the tree, right? Right, and right. So maybe on some level, she's like, I think if if in order for him to function, he needs some sort of grieving process, even if it's on some kind of subconscious level, or this is all part of the the big experiment i don't <laughs> right and so what we learn the what we are learning at least in that scene regardless of what the motivations of cobell mm-hmm. and or lumen is we are we now are able to make a connection that says well there is something in there yeah <laughs> there there you know will it come out eventually you know to what are the boundaries of it it shows that you can't you're not completely severed like severance is not a, is it shows that it's not complete and either that's a testament to the human brain or it's a, or it's something about the severed process. So there is something about that, that it's um, uh, like, that's our first moment where I think we realize, well, so it almost undercuts somewhat of the clone concept, right? Maybe. Because this, because this suggests that 
it feels like it goes more to like, okay, this probably the same person. Because if you created somebody who did not have any memory of that, why would it come about? Maybe, or the chip moves from clone to clone. So there's a sense in which it is the same person. Mm. I, honestly, I have no idea. Um, Irving discovers that O&D actually has at least seven, people, seven employees working in a massive unlabeled back room. And then he has a discussion with Bert about the handbook. And to me, this is sort of the most revealing scene in terms of Irv's character development. I feel up until this scene, Irving is sort of your classic corporate stooge, religious fundamentalist kind of person. Then Bert kind of opens up this new way of reading the handbook in a way that no one else in the show would have been able to do it. So he has this romantic connection with Bert and then Irv has this discussion and Bert ends up being able to quote chapter and verse. And he says, I'm an original, you know, I'm sort of a first edition kind of guy. Mm hmm. And basically what he's doing is he's saying, I have figured out, and he, he is a direct quote from Bert. He says, he finds other ways to speak to us, meaning Egan, right? So Egan here is a stand-in for God. Right. And it, was, it suggests is that, look, there's you can have a more creative approach to the handbook. And it it's not sacrilegious. And I think if this was said some if you know this was put forward by Mark or Dylan or whatever, Irv would think these are not serious people. They don't have the reverence I do for, you know, the corporation or Egan or whatever. But because it's Bert, and because he knows that Bert is sort of a kindred spirit, and Bert might know the handbook better than I do, and I know that. Bert has the necessary reverence for Egan. Maybe I could learn something from this guy. And then, of course, his world opens up. Because basically what this is doing is it's saying you can have a dynamic rather than a static view of the handbook. Right. And all of a sudden, now we see Irv on a different, on a different path. He's the kind of person who might be listening for Egan's voice in other places, like maybe in Rickon's book, or maybe the, the corporate structure doesn't you know, have the perfect interpretation of Egan's original intent. He Now he's his life is more dynamic because of this. And in some ways, he can become less of maybe a foil to any effort to undermine the environment exactly. that they're in and with the because now he's not because just just the idea of like whatever what if, if the goal was to make him less open-minded now he's it's gone the other direction right. yeah yeah so he's he's kind of you're kind of seeing a different side of of irv in that he's more human than he was before uh he's so he's not just a corporate stooge but now he's more open to an uh, alternative hermeneutic and Bert's the only one in the story that would be able to do that for him. Right. So I thought that was, that was real. I mean, that this is where the allegory really, really works because it's a really difficult to ever kind of 
bring a new hermeneutic to a sacred time. It's almost like the case with anything, right? I mean, whatever whatever it is you you hold sacred, whatever it is that you've you know basically built your ethos from. I remember when I was ten years old, I got a cabin with my family, and uh, my dad's reading the newspaper, and it's an interview with Macho Man Randy Savage, and he like walked over to where I was sitting, and he plopped the newspaper down and says, read this article. Now, up until that point, I was a firm believer that everything in professional wrestling was on the up and up. It's all legitimate fighting. The, out, the, out, <laughs> the outcomes are not predetermined. And in this article, the Macho Man betrayed all of my sensibilities. <laughs> Because he ba- he basically came out and said the whole thing is scripted, and I couldn't deal with it. I was like, I, my whole world was kind of like turned upside down. I thought, how can this be true and the other thing also be true? And that was that was one of the moments in my life where I realized <laughs> that, that I couldn't trust everything I saw on WWF. <laughs> Wow, I mean that's that's a tough moment to you know for anybody. And my dad, my um, dad, oh, I can't believe my dad did this to me, but he did. Well, I mean, from his perspective, he's like, "Look, I've been trying to preach to you, but if I, I can't get through to you the way the, the Macho Man can, I, that was exactly it." Because he would always say, "This is not real," and I would say, "It absolutely is real." To me, it was real, uh, and I never believed in Santa Claus, but that was my Santa Claus moment. <laughs> 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 Macho Man Randy Savage was my Santa Claus. Yeah, and the weird part is this will be like an elf coming down from the North Pole to tell you that there is no Santa. You'd be like, I don't understand what's going on. Because I see you. Why are you saying the thing? Because you only you only exist in this world. <laughs> I think that that leaves us with the, the final scene, so... Helly smuggles out an extension cord and hangs herself in an elevator shaft. And this is sort of cut together with scenes of Dylan finding Rickon's book and Mark going through his special wellness check. So I think that they want to see those. They want us to see those particular scenes in parallel. But for me, the you know the the major exclamation point is the actual suicide, right, or suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. So there's something parallel about finding Rickon's book for Dylan, having the building the tree out of out of clay, sculpting the tree out of clay for Mark, and Helly's suicide attempt. Can you? Can you help me with those parallels? Well, you have three subversions of the Lumen process, right? And they're three very different uh, uh, ways. One is uh, it, uh, hijacking and taking full agency. Mm-hmm. I'm in control. I'm gonna. I'm going to kill myself and my Audi. Uh, that's how this ends. Dylan is having. He basically, it's kind of like. Uh, I took a bite of the yeah, apple. I'm going to see yeah, what's going on here. That's right. And so he's so he's he's about to, you know, it could be that he's about to read this and and suddenly his world's going to change. And it's going to change in a way that like he's he's going to he's getting introduced to the mm-hmm. outside world 
so this part of him that only exists in there is also going to experience a death mm-hmm. or a transition mm-hmm. of some sort. Meanwhile, Mark is in a place where he has everything suggests he has zero agency. He's being assigned a wellness check. He's going to be walked through it by Miss Casey, but he has a moment where agency finds Yeah, him. he almost has this sort he, of emotional bridge to the outside world that shouldn't be possible, right? Right. So the so each one of them is like one grabs it, one is sort of introduced to it, and the other one just sort of happens with absolutely mm. no uh, control over it. So, but like all three of them, to, to me, it suggests that they're all now about to hit the same path with different yeah. ways, like diff- different different mechanisms, right? Um, that are probably more. Uh, that are really in line with their personality types that we've seen. Helly is going to make it happen. She is going to do it against all odds. Mark is super passive. The only way that anything's going to happen to him is mm. if it's, if it's involuntary mm. and Dylan loves the goss. He loves the hot goss. <laughs> he wants to hear what's going The only way you're going to get to Dylan is you're going to, it's going to come through another channel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then he will then do what he wants to do with it because, like, it's the same way that he believes in all the lore of of O and D and all of the other stories. It's like he likes to get he likes to get he wants information. The dirt. Yeah. Um, yeah, he wants the dirt, and so here's here's like a naughty reveal to some degree. So he's gonna he's more than likely gonna be like, "This is what I'm into now." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that, and then of course we already re- talked about herbs transition moment with Bert, right? So um right. so in, in with each of our sort of lumen employees, each of the four, they each have a transformational moment in this episode. Right. And it all is to upset uh not yeah, what whatever wherever they are with the, the severance process. And after this was done, after the episode was over, Sarah's like, "Was that was that the season finale?" It, it really does feel like <laughs> a massive hinge point in the story, right? Sure. Uh, so that so yeah, anyway, I, I love this episode. Fantastic, the drill notwithstanding, fantastic episode. Um, spoilers, spoiler talk. So jump off if you don't want spoilers. A couple things I noticed. Um, well, we know Heli doesn't die, right? So, right. Uh, so that's sort of a, I guess you could say, come to Jesus moment. Maybe for her Audi. Uh, we'll see how that how that develops. I thought it was interesting that Dylan hears a baby and Helly hears a mumbly, angry guy. Right. Uh, we know that Dylan is a father. So maybe they're right. using his own child's crying to kind of psychologically break him. So, yeah. So that does sort of almost suggest that maybe the the candle issue was a known possibility the candle issue was done and the other thing is that do i remember correctly that miss casey ends up is is mark's wife yeah here we have a situation where miss casey and mark s are in the same room trying to heal mark's grief 
using a candle that they have that clearly connects them in some way, right? Right, and that's I think the most wild part of that scene when you know it. It's like that's husband and wife. She's like we don't have any idea mm-hmm. when this show mm-hmm. is over how how in the hell she fits into the Lumen plan. Uh, and and so so that brings up all other kinds of questions, right? I mean. We we've already heard the the talking of, from PD that there are people that never leave Lumen, and mm-hmm. you, you know we don't and we, we don't know we don't and know who they are. Um, never, never mention of clones, but there was that room that that room of was it goats or sheep or something later on? Yeah, right. So yeah. that's suggestive of clones, yeah, maybe. But you know you got that that discussion of PD's chip that this is PD, right? So. Maybe right. maybe that's a clone of his wife. Right. I mean, it also brings like so. Then it just opens up another bunch of questions, which is like, what is Mark's memory of his wife in in the out world? Is that real? Um, is it uh, was she assigned to him in that world? You know, we don't. I mean, there's so many <laughs> odd right. things, right? I mean, there's just. Uh, and that's what I think I like about what the show does to you by kind of just giving you these little trickles of of reveals. We become almost like the, the like Irv in them yeah, in that regard. Yeah. It's like all we can do is try to connect the dots, and that's kind of what um, that's kind of what like a lot of religions will do, though, right? You give just enough, and then it's like, yeah, we know that maybe some of this text is flawed and this and that, so we'll spend our entire lives connecting those dots with theories and this and that, and that helps build a faith. And the next thing you know uh your your foundations for what you consider sacred or maybe not in the text right but you're left yeah. to your own devices to yeah, fill yeah. in those blanks so i think i i missed the candle at least twice watching this and sarah's the one that kind of brought that up but for me it's such an important little detail because this whole the whole thing is about memory and of course smell is very very connected to memory and so it really does come back to what Cobell's motives are. And that to me is one of the, the chief things that I'm worried about going into season two. What it, what's going on with Cobell? Like what are, what motivates her? Uh, and how much agency does yeah, she really have? If yeah. any, like, well, and the, and the Miss Casey idea is like, I mean, Unlike anybody else in this um, in this world, right? Like Milchek and Cobell obviously are aware of everything that's going on. We assume, um, at least or in at terms least of they, what they know, the Lumen Project. They know and, a bigger slice of the. They know at least a few more slices of the pie than maybe some of the rest of them do. But I don't know who knows what the whole picture looks like. Right, we don't know for sure. I mean, we get these. We get this. Well, we see Milchek. Uh, present for Heli's um, uh, operation. So we know he exists outside and inside. And from everything we can gather, he does not, he's not severed. But Miss Casey's a different one because she's to our, we don't know if there's more than one of her in the department. Mm -hmm. She operates at a very robotic, very matter of fact level, which Nobody else that we have in this world does. 
I mean, even though Irv, Irv is a is a you know kind of a corporate shill, he he operates like a person in in most yeah. cases. And whereas she, but seems... only, what if the only thing that we saw of Milchek was in the in the break room? We might we might feel the same right. thing. Well, about that's him. it. But Miss Casey, we don't know what else. But so Miss Casey, is she, well, is, we assume she's severed. We don't know. We don't really know. We What right? we do know is that there's some kind of parallel between the, the wellness check and the break room in that there's very strict rules on how you can say things. Like, like Irv yeah. is not allowed to express even a sort of a facial expression in reply to certain information about his Audi. Everything is very controlled, and Miss Casey is the controller in that case, in the same way that Milchak is the controller in the the break room. So I don't, I don't really know who she is outside of the wellness center, or the wellness check room, or whatever. But she right. has to have some wider personality, doesn't she? I don't know. I mean, that's what makes her so mysterious, right? And what makes it even more mysterious when we realize that that's his wife. I mean, that was that was such an insane reveal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she's a character that you just kind of assume for so much of the show is is just a uh, like a little a specter, another another glimpse into yeah, the weirdness wallpaper. that is Lumen. She's wallpaper, and she, you know she yeah. serves a function, and yet we're. She is the primary motivation for Mark's character. Right. Like she's, yeah, exactly. So. Is it to Frank or to Beans? <laughs>